Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So growing up, I played baseball. And I remember one year, we had this kid on our team, and he was one of those kids that hit puberty at six. Right, so we're out, we're playing t-ball, and he's six foot three with a full beard. <laughs> Every time he comes up to bat, he hits the ball over the fence. And that whole season, I don't think we ever lost a game, and I don't think any of them were particularly close. <laughs> so the rest of us had nothing to worry about. We knew so long as he showed up, we didn't have to be concerned about it. didn't matter how good the other team was. If he played, we won. So we just relaxed, had a good time with it because we weren't worried about anything because, you know, we had the Hulk. Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about anything. And yet life is a constant stream of things that we can worry about. Things that can stress us out and give us anxiety or concern. But I've always wondered, why is it that there are certain things, out of all the great list of things that we could be worried about, why do some things keep us up at night and others don't really bother us at all? I think the difference between the things that cause us to stress and the things that don't is our security. When we have confidence, certainty that everything's going to be okay, we, find, we tend to be less troubled by the issues that we're facing. So I want to test my theory. What I'm going to do, I'm going to give you two scenarios. We're going to have a little, do a little interactive thing here. I know it's church and you're supposed to be like it's a funeral service and nobody moves or talks or pretends they're awake, but we're just going to ignore all of that for now. I'm going to give you two scenarios, and then we're going to take a poll to see which person in these scenarios you think would be more stressed out by their situation. Person A does not have a good, reliable job. They struggle to get enough hours to work. They struggle to pay their bills. They got a lot of debt. They have nothing in their bank account. They got $20 in their savings account, and they get an electric bill for $100 knowing that their next check isn't going to come until after that bill is due. That's person A. Person B is married, both he and his wife have well, good-paying jobs, they have stocks and investments, they have retirement that they've been putting into for decades, they have over $100,000 in their savings account, they decide they're going to buy a new car. They don't want to take on new debt because they've already paid off all their old debt, so they're going to pay for it outright. They buy the car, they get the bill, $15,000. Who thinks person A is more stressed out? Okay. Anybody think person B is more stressed out by that bill? Okay. Why would we think that there's even a comparison between the two? One of them has this measly bill of $100. The other one's bill is $15,000. I would suggest that the difference between the two is not the size of their struggle, but that person B knows how they're going to take care of it. What causes stress Fear and worry more than anything else in this world is not the size of our obstacle. It's the uncertainty that surrounds it. So the greatest comfort that we have in this life 
is our certainty of what happens after this life. So we're starting through the book of Hebrews. And what we're going to see here is sort of a thematic shift starts to take place. The beginning of Hebrews is all about comparison. That first section is Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than the high priest. Jesus is greater than everything. And so the whole thing is about establishing the superiority of Jesus to anything else that we could place our trust in instead of Jesus. And then, having established thoroughly the depth of Jesus' superiority, the author shifts his focus to the issue of certainty or confidence. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13, kind of building off of what Pastor Rick unpacked for us last week, which is probably one of the, the most controversial texts in the book of Hebrews that addresses the question of whether or not we can lose our salvation. And the temptation with that issue is to think of it as being nothing more than an academic question. Can I or can I not lose my salvation? It's actually one of the most practical and important questions that we will ask in our relationship with Jesus. How you answer that question will have huge ramifications for how you understand and connect with God, and it has impact over every other area of our lives. Because the thing that we need to endure the storms and struggles of this life, the thing that comforts us through those struggles, is a confidence in what happens after. See, the gospel is not just good news for our eternal destination. The gospel is the greatest comfort that we have in our immediate situation. And when we properly understand what the gospel says and what it teaches, it gives us this not just comfort, but security and stability to endure whatever the world throws at us. The key to overcoming the struggles, worries, and fears of life is a clear understanding of what the gospel says. So, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to who, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. When we face struggles and hardships, it's easy to lose perspective. When the things in front of us and the problems that we're dealing with seem great and we don't know how they're going to get solved, when that uncertainty builds, we can kind of forget about everything that's happened in our past. And so while his audience is struggling with this feeling of hopelessness in the face of overwhelming persecution from the Romans, the author writes to comfort them by reminding them of the certainty and reliability of the promises of God. And to show them that, to illustrate the point that he's making, he uses the story of Abraham. So to understand what the author's saying, we have to kind of know the story. So you've got Abraham at the time he was called Abram. He lives in the pagan city of Ur, and God calls him to leave his pagan city to go to a land that he would show him. Doesn't even tell him where he's going. Just says, hey, I want you to go, and I'll tell you where to go once we get moving. And Abram does, leaves family, friends, leaves everything he's ever known behind to go where God told him to go. He spends some time, he stops in a city called Haran until the death of his father. And when he leaves Haran, God gives Abraham a promise. 
that he would be the father of a great nation. At the time, Abraham is 75 years old. So here we have Abraham, who is old enough to be a great-grandfather, but has no kids. He's married to a woman named Sarai. Her later, name later becomes Sarah. You know, they started moving. They had to, you know, tighten the budget. They couldn't afford to buy that last vowel. <laughs> a little Wheel of Fortune joke. <laughs> so they've been married for years, trying to have kids for years, have been unsuccessful in their doing so. And God gives them this impossible promise. There are some who attempt to diminish the significance of this promise by saying, well, back then people lived longer, and you know the childbearing years, they would have been like probably longer, right? So this isn't really that big of a deal. Yes, there are people in the Old Testament who lived weirdly long lives. It does not mean that the, the average lifespan was significantly different. Additionally, childbearing years weren't significantly different either. In fact, childbearing was so important and so ingrained in this culture, both to their survival, to their legacy, to their honor in their society, that couples would often get married much younger, 13, 14, start getting betrothed so that they could start having children sooner because of how important that was in their culture. So Abraham and Sarah have been married for a long time, still have no kids. Sarah is well beyond childbearing years. But God gives Abraham this promise. Abraham believes him. He goes to this land, the land of Canaan, that God would show him. He lives in the land for 10 years. And doesn't just live there. He has to fight for it. There are four kings that are trying to take the land from him. So he is fighting for his life to protect this random land that God sent him to. He's struggling. In Genesis 15, he's worn out. He's fatigued from a long day of battle. He's sprawled out. He's feeling hopeless and in despair because God made him an impossible promise 25 years ago. And he still doesn't have a kid. He's fighting to defend a land that he doesn't even know what to do with. And he knows that if he dies, if one of these kings or somebody kills him in battle, his line is broken. And so despair and hopelessness are starting to set in. He's a hundred years old, still don't have a kid. And in that dark pit, God comes to Abraham and says, you will have an heir and your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. Can you imagine in that moment, having waited 25 years, hearing that promise, and still believing God. Yeah, you've told me this before. Here we are, still nothing. 25 years he's waited, and it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But his story gets better God delivers on his promise. Abraham and Sarah have a baby boy, Isaac, who's their pride and joy, the apple of their eye, the miracle baby that they have longed for and been trying to have for longer than anybody in this room has been alive. And finally they have him. This precious boy that they've dreamed about and prayed about and longed for for decades. And he's here. And then God says to Abraham, hey, you're going to take him up on the mountain and you're going to sacrifice him. And Abraham was willing to do it because he trusted God. He's like, I know this. he's going to figure something out. I'm just going to work something out. I'm just going to trust and believe and I'm going to obey. And so he takes his son who he's waited for for so long up onto a hill to sacrifice him because that's what God said to do. God obviously does not want child sacrifice. He stops that from happening and he provides a substitutionary sacrifice in its place. 
But because Abraham was willing to sacrifice the most important thing in his world, God does something that he had never done before in human history. He swears an oath that Abraham's descendants would be blessed, that he would bless the line of Abraham. Verse 15 is the key. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Islam, Christianity, Judaism, the three great world religions today, all trace their line back to Abraham. His descendants are more numerous than the stars. God fulfilled his promise. And the author reminds us of this story because we have a greater promise. Not to be the progenitors of a great nation, but we are promised to be the heirs of an eternal kingdom, the children of God who will be ushered at the end of this life into an eternal life in paradise with God where we will know no pain and no struggle and no suffering ever again, just joy and comfort and harmony in community with our creator. We have been given a far greater promise. But how do we obtain that promise? The same way Abraham did, through patiently waiting. This story is meant to give us confidence and to reassure us and comfort us through the struggles of life by reminding us that God is faithful. That he always keeps his word. But that is, church, it is rarely immediate. God rarely immediately delivers on his promise, but he always ultimately delivers on his promise. And even when by all objective standards, by all rational, logical points of view, what God says he will do is impossible. God always keeps his word. There is no storm that is too great, no situation too impossible to stop God from doing what God says he will do. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Anybody got trust issues? Let me do that differently. Anybody not have trust issues? Listen, if you raise your hand right now, I'm going to demonstrate my trust issue in not believing you. We've all been lied to. We've all been misled, taken advantage of, deceived. We've all been wrong. We've all had people make us promises and fail to keep them. We've all had people that say, I'm going to do this, and then they don't follow through. Because of our fallen, depraved condition, because we are inflicted with sin, our word is unreliable. Because lying comes naturally to us. How dare you say that? I never lie. I always tell the truth. (coughs) Santa. Sorry, I'm allergic to self-delusion. We all lie. We justify it in any number of ways, but we do. Sometimes to avoid something bad happening. Sometimes to spare someone else's feelings. It's not a big lie. It's not a mean lie, but it's still, it's a lie. 
sometimes to gain something that we want. And even when we learn to tame that desire and control that desire, lying still comes naturally to us. I can't believe you'd say that. Think about this. You got to teach your kids to lie or you got to train them to tell the truth? Lying in our fallen condition is natural and easy and we are quick to justify it. And because people are imperfect, because we are flawed by our sinful nature, our word can't be trusted. So what do we do? How do we operate when we can't take people at their word? Well, in the ancient world, their solution to this trustworthy problem was to swear an oath. By swearing an oath, you were offering an assurance beyond just your word that what you said was true or that you were going to do what you said you would do. It was kind of like signing a contract. You're adding a level of assurance to what you've said. And how it worked is you would swear an oath by something that is greater than yourself. And in so doing, you were inviting punishment or a curse upon yourself if it proved that your oath was false. And so swearing an oath was a practice that was done in order to offer comfort, assurance, or confidence to someone that what you had to say was true. And this was particularly important in Hebrew culture where swearing an oath while lying was a violation of the third commandment and punishable by God. In fact, while we often talk about taking the Lord's name in vain, we think of it as an exclamation, saying things like, OMG, and all that, so it's taking the Lord's name in vain. Actually, contextually, taking the Lord's name in vain was more about using God's name, swearing an oath in the name of God while misleading or misrepresenting something. There's a lot that we could say there, but I'm not going to say any of it because it will get me in trouble. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Since it is impossible for God to lie, when he swears an oath and makes a promise, that is a double assurance. Wait, why is it impossible for God to lie? John 17, God's word is truth. Titus 1, 2, God never lies. It is impossible for God to lie because God is truth. All truth comes from God. And so for God to lie, he would be in violation and opposition to his very self. It is impossible for him to do. And so God offers an oath and a promise as an accommodation for human weakness and doubt. God desired to offer an oath to help comfort his people because he knows the struggles we have to doubt and trust because of our own imperfection. God cannot lie. And what that means, church, is that when God makes a promise, not only will it come to be, but it absolutely must come to be. So when Jesus says, you belong to me, and all who belong to me will be saved. Not only can that happen, it absolutely must happen. God's promises cannot fail. His word cannot fail. 
even when it seems impossible, even when it seems improbable. Church, our hope, our hope is not in something breakable or imperfect. Our hope is not in rolling the dice or playing the odds. Our hope is not that something is a statistical probability to occur. Our hope is in the promise of Jesus. Our hope is that the promises of God, who Jesus, who cannot lie, is secured. And what is that promise? That those who belong to Jesus are day by day being made more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit so that in the end we get to go be with Jesus in paradise and glory with our creator forever. The promise of God is secure. His word is eternally sealed and eternally secure. He cannot fail. He will not fail. What he says must and will absolutely, with greater certainty than death and taxes, come to pass. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. An anchor is a metaphor for deep safety and security. Because an anchor is used to keep a ship safe and secure in a specific location. And when anchored properly, that's the key, the winds can blow and the waves can crash and the ship will not be dashed upon the rocks. As believers, the anchor of our soul, the thing that give, keeps us safe, that secures us, that fixes us in a place where the storms can rage around us but they will do us no harm is in Jesus the one who has gone before us, who has entered into the presence of God, who has promised that he is going to make a place for us and that he will come back to get us. Our hope is in the unfailing, unchangeable, unwavering promises of God. And in that hope, in knowing that Jesus has promised, that he has secured our salvation because he is our anchor, we can endure any storm. But here's the issue. We have a natural tendency to view storms as problems. When the storms come, we assume, right, naturally, what did I do to deserve this? Right, life gets hard, we got pain and struggles. Why is this happening to me? What did I do? There's something about us that naturally assumes that when bad things happen, it must be because we did something bad to deserve it. Do you know why that's the assumption that we make? Because in our hearts, we're rooted in guilt and shame. Let me be clear. Sometimes God disciplines his children, which means some of the hardships we endure are because of sin in our lives. Choices have consequences. So sometimes some of the storms that we're in are because of choices that we've made, because of sins that we have committed. So yes, sometimes struggles are a result of sin. The problem I have is that when we assume that the storm must be because we've done something wrong, it innately makes us think storms mean change course. And that's a problem. Here's why. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee. We call it a sea. It's a giant lake. And so they get in the boat and they sail across at night. 
There's a reason that people don't sail across the Sea of Galilee at night. The hills are like a thousand feet tall, and they create these little valleys that serve as wind tunnels. And at night, the breezes change, and the wind comes in from alternate directions upon the lake, stirs the water, and can create these massive, deadly storms. Most of the disciples grew up on this lake. They know how dangerous sailing at night is. Jesus says to go on the lake, so they go on the lake. And guess what? They get caught in a storm. And they are struggling against the storm for their lives. Church, why were they in the storm? Because they did what Jesus told them to do. You see, if we just assume that struggles and hardships means we're on the wrong path because we did something wrong, then struggle and hardship, we go, got to change directions. But what happens when the storm that you're in is because you've been faithful to Jesus and because you're doing what Jesus told you to do? Then you're changing course the wrong way. Following Jesus will call us to sail into the contrary winds of the world around us. As 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet we do it. We sail into those contrary winds. We walk ourselves into the storm because unlike the world around us, church, our hope is not in avoiding the storm. Our hope is in the one who has power over it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about anything. I don't believe that there's a single command in all of Scripture that we disobey more than this one. Jesus says, don't worry about anything. And what do we do? We worry more. Right? Because we go, hey, I'm still going to worry about all the stuff I was worried about before. But now, because you told me not to worry, I'm going to worry about not worrying. <laughs> right? Anybody? Yes. So Jesus says, don't do something, and we end up doing it more. We continue to worry when our God and King says, don't do it about anything. We continue to worry, typically, about everything. Why? Because we don't fully understand the gospel. Because our idea of grace is one-dimensional. This is not a criticism. This is the nature of religion. We talk about grace. We sing about grace. We believe that we're saved by grace, but underneath all the talk and the singing and the thoughts, underneath all the hollow expressions, we still live as if life is performance-based. Look, I grew up in church. I was born in a pew. My first word was hallelujah. Okay? I've been in this my whole life. I've heard more sermons about grace than I can count, and the message behind all of them was the same. Jesus gives you grace. I don't screw it up. And I lived like that. Okay, I belong to Jesus and that's good, but every time I sinned, I would worry. Every time I fell short, every time I started to doubt, I would worry. Did I push it too far? Did I sin too much? Was that too great? Was that it? Because I knew, I knew in all of my time in church, I knew that Jesus had some line in the sand he wouldn't tell us where it was, but he'd drawn a line. And if you cross that line, he goes, I'm done with you. That's enough. I mean, I was gracious. I was patient. But you just, you pushed it too far. You little idiot, get out. I was certain that that was there. I lived that way. Every time I messed up, afraid. Every time, what if I didn't remember to, to ask for forgiveness for that sin? 
That's Catholicism. What if I didn't think to do this? Because I had a shallow view of grace. Right? It's like I treated grace, and I think, I don't think I'm alone in this, like Jesus gave me a house plant. Right? Because here's this gift. You didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, but here's a gift. Now you gotta keep it alive till you die. I'm like, I'm really bad at keeping house plants alive, people. Every sin, I'm like, oh, forgot to water it. Every mistake, it's like, I forgot to put it out in the sun so it can get the nutrients it needs. Every time, I just watched this plant wither, and I thought with it, my salvation was withering. And I just hoped that I could keep the stupid thing alive long enough to die so that I could go to heaven. Anybody relate to that feeling? We have grace, but man, we still got to work for it, don't we? The more I studied the Word, the more I began to read what God actually said, the more I began to realize Jesus doesn't just give salvation. He's the one who sustains it. That salvation was never in my hands, never earned, never obtained, never made deserved by me. That salvation is not a set of car keys that I could misplace with eternal consequences. Because it was never mine. Salvation belongs to God. Salvation is in the hands of God. And the only thing, church, that you and I have ever contributed to our salvation was creating the need for it. You did nothing to earn the grace that Jesus gave you. That's implicit in the name. And because you did nothing to obtain it, you can do nothing to lose it. Jesus holds salvation in his hand. And his promise is that I will not lose any that the Father has given to me. Those who belong to me will be saved. I will not lose one. I will not misplace one. I will not forget one. I will not reject one. Those who belong to me will be saved. That is the promise of Jesus who cannot change his mind. Right? Well, why can't he change his mind? Because God has perfect knowledge. To change your mind requires new information or a new perspective that would alter your view of something. If you have perfect knowledge, there is no new information or perspectives. His mind will not change. He cannot lie. Means Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm going to save you so that you can feel good. They'd be like, ah, I was just kidding. See ya. Which means the only possible option left for why Jesus could say, my people, those who are in me will be saved, and we are not, is if Jesus can fail. Right? Like, I, I like to be on time. Punctuality is really important to me. I say, hey, I'm going to be there this time. I'm going to be there typically early. I also have a three-year-old, which means that never happens. So my desire and intent is to be on time, but the three-year-old, he does not share my core conviction. So I'm late sometimes because there is an external force beyond me that can prevent me from doing what I desire and claim to do. But what Paul says is that I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What that says is that Jesus cannot fail to do what Jesus says he will do. There is no external force that can cause Jesus to be unable to fulfill his promise. Do you understand the comfort that comes from this? In the storms and the struggles of life, and even in the midst of our own imperfection and failures, to know that salvation from start to finish is in the hands of the God who died on a cross for you? You think Jesus went through that and it's like, ah, I just forgot them, my bad. No. No. There is no greater comfort in this life than eternal security. And if our grace is not assured by the hands of Jesus, then it's not really that much grace, is it? How can it be amazing if it can be lost? How can it be amazing if it can be taken from us? There's no greater comfort than to know that your eternity is not dependent on your performance, but on Jesus' performance. That your eternity is not dependent on your being perfect because Jesus was perfect for you. That it is set, that it is fixed, that it is secured, that before you drew your first breath, Jesus had secured your eternity if you are in him. Do you know what that does? That frees us from fear and worry and stress. It removes all the power they have over us because there is no uncertainty left. Jesus doesn't just say, don't worry about anything. He's the reason we don't have to. Because when you know, when you are certain of how your story ends, of where you will spend eternity, when you are certain that at the end of this life you will enter into a paradise beyond your wildest imagination, that you will live in the presence of your creator in community and harmony with him, that you will never again know sorrow, never again shed tears, never again know disappointment or loss or failure. When you are certain of that, tell me, are you really worried about getting sick? When your forever is secure, are you worried that on occasion it's hard to pay all the bills? Are you worried that your job has some unreliability or there's crazy chaos in the world around you? If eternity is fixed, is set, if it is secured by the hands of Jesus who cannot lie and who cannot fail, you really worried about dying? When we have a proper understanding of the gospel, when we understand what grace really is, We don't fear death. We long for it. Not trying to rush it prematurely, but because we recognize that the greatest thing that will happen to us in this life is when we leave it. And if you do not fear death, if you have a healthy longing for death, what power does stress have? When the greatest fear that can exist in the human heart has been completely removed because that fear is actually a joy that you can't wait to open. 
what do you have to stress about? What is left when we understand the gospel of Jesus? We are free from all stress, free from all worry, free from all fear because they no longer have power over you because of Jesus. Those who are in Jesus, who belong to Jesus, can endure any storm, can walk through any struggle, with confidence and joy because they know they have been secured by the hand of the almighty God. And what we're going to do later today is celebrate that very thing. 1230, we're going to go down to Spring Made Pier and we're going to see a group of people who are surrendering their life to Jesus, who are making the public declaration of faith that they belong to him. get to experience that freedom from the fear of death, from the struggles and storms of life, because they declare that they belong to him. And church, if you belong to him, when you understand what that means, you'll never have to worry again, because Jesus has set you free. Because your eternity is secure by the Jesus who died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give us. That your promises don't run out. That your grace is not conditional. But that the life that you give that the hope that we have in you is a hope that can never be taken and never be lost. And God, my prayer is for every person who is struggling, every person going through the storms of uncertainty and challenges around them, that you would remind them of who they are, that you would remind them of the security that they have in you, and that you would give them that comfort and that peace to stand fast in you. And for those who don't, I pray that they would see the truth of who you are, that they would see how your people can so courageously endure storms in your name. And they would long for that in their own life and come to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. Amen.